The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Wall Street Week host David Weston, he spoke with Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate in economics, and David got his take on the state of the U.S. economy. We are in an extraordinarily good you know, immediate position. I, I've been arguing with people who say, you know, this is a Goldilocks economy, and that's, that's wrong. Goldilocks found a uh, you know, parish that was neither too hot nor too cold. We've got an economy that's hot where you want it to be hot, like in GDP growth, and cold where you want it to be cold on inflation. So this is... You know, right now is a, this is a, always the best, you know, short-run economy we've had since since the 1990s. Um, the so what we need for the next four years is to be thinking about the long run. Do we need to at least start to think about the deficit and the debt that's accumulating? Because right now, as you look at Donald Trump and Joe Biden, the two leading candidates. Uh, yeah. Neither one seems to be willing to address that. By the way, this week, Congress did do something on taxation, which was actually actually it was negative in terms of de deficit. So oh, yeah. do, we, do we need to address that question? And if so, when? Um, you know, I'm not a complete deficits never matter guy, um, but I'm not. I st it still doesn't look like a first rank issue, despite the, you know, the enormous numbers. But, you know, everything about America is enormous. Uh, and uh, particularly, there's a lot of the sustainability of debt depends a lot on comparison between interest rates and the economy's growth rate. And right now what we have is interest rates seem to be coming down. Growth seems to, you know, productivity growth is, is looking really good. There are high hopes for AI, all of which means that despite the huge size of those raw debt numbers, I actually don't think that there's any urgency. You know, I, yeah, someday, but uh, if you want to ask, you know, given the, the range of things that can politically be done, uh, we actually just did this something quite good. I mean, I, I don't care about the business tax cuts part of it, but we we're actually helping... Uh, poor families with kids, and uh, those sorts of things are a lot more important than than the deficit right now. Uh, history, we're told, does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme sometimes. Is there a rhyme with 1993? Because if you go back to 1993, you talk to Bob Rubin right. about what happened with President Clinton. It's thought that we got a lot of growth out of the 90s in part because we both increased some taxes and cut some spending. Is there a similar opportunity here for pro-growth policies? Uh, I'm a great admirer of Bob Rubin, but I don't believe that story for a minute. Uh, it's just it's just not what you what looks like uh, actually happened in the 90s. What actually happened in the 90s was that businesses finally figured out what to do with these computer things. And we got a, a, a decade of good productivity growth because we finally figured out how to make productive use of IT. And I don't I actually don't think that. Uh, uh, Clinton administration policies made much difference one way or the other. Uh, so I just don't buy that. It's just, uh, and we may be approaching another moment like that. Again, you know, recent productivity numbers are really quite good. AI, maybe it's either going to destroy us or all, all or, or possibly give us another another decade of good productivity growth. So no, I, I just don't, they, that whole uh, responsible fiscal policy was responsible for the roaring 90s. I, it's, 
It's a lovely narrative. I don't think it's a, there's anything to support it. So let's turn to the economic approaches, overall approaches of, again, let's talk about Joe Biden and Donald Trump, the two leading candidates right now. How different are their approaches? We had, we had Glenn Hubbard, actually, and he said his concern was they were too much alike because of populist notions such as protectionism. Okay. Uh, I know, I think, a lot about protectionism. Uh, it's, you know, that, that's what my, my life is built on is that kind of stuff. And in general, it's overrated as an issue. Now, you can do damage, and some of what Trump is talking about now could actually do significant damage. Um, put it this way, the, uh, very much, Biden is, is a, what in Europe you'd call a social democrat. It's definitely about a stronger social safety net, higher taxes on top incomes. If he, he actually did quite a lot more than people realize already in that direction, despite having the, you know, a minimal majority in Congress for two years and, and nothing at all since. Um, we've, you know, had substantial enhancement of Obamacare. We've had a lot of investment in, in, in uh, children and families and, of course, infrastructure, finally, after infrastructure being two weeks away for four years, all of a sudden now we actually have it. Um, and Trump is not. Trump, for the most part, except for his protectionism, Trump is very much a standard, you know, tax cutting, uh, let's not spend money on people, Republican. So, no, they're, they're very, very different in terms of likely impact on families in, in America. And what about effect on the economy? And you mentioned the tariff issue before. Yeah. Uh, President Trump, uh, former President Trump, has said that he would favor a 10% across the board, not just China, across the board tariff. Right. Uh, and, and actually, Mr. Lighthizer, his advisory section, maybe we increase that to eliminate trade deficit. What would that do to the growth of the American economy? Okay. Now, a dirty little secret of international trade economics is that uh, moderate tariff rates do not, at least according to our models, and as far as we can tell in practice, don't have huge growth effects. It's, uh, they distort consumption and production choices. They, uh, they do some damage, but to get really big numbers, you have to get well beyond 10%. So, you know, it, of course, if, if the goal is to eliminate the trade deficit, uh, Lighthizer was going to have a surprise because uh, tariffs don't eliminate trade deficits unless they get so high as to basically make trade impossible. So we would be talking about much, much higher tariff rates potentially. Um, what uh, worries me is, not, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of really negative consequences if the U.S. does a 10% tariff, but they they're sort of geopolitical more than anything else. They would mean that the United States is basically saying, well, we're opting out of our role as, as a, a leader of the global economy. It would have a lot of bad effects. In terms of the economic impact, I mean, I'm hearing talk about, well, let's have 60% tariffs on imports from China. And, uh, you know, tariff, uh, uh, roughly speaking, the adverse effects of a tariff are proportional to something like the square of the tariff rate. So a 60% tariff is, you know, 30, 36% times as bad as a 10% tariff. So if we start to get into those kinds of tariffs, yeah, then we are actually talking about significant negative impacts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.